good evening, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 61. Thanks so much for joining us today. Our guest tonight is Molly Fisk, and we'll be here uh, with her in just a second. Uh, but first, I should say, uh, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. If you enjoy poetry as much as we do, and we really love poetry, so we hope you love poetry too, please do click the like button. Um, Make sure you're subscribed. Do whatever you can do, no matter which platform you're watching this on, whether it's Facebook, um, YouTube, Periscope, Twitter, iTunes after the fact. Give us some iTunes ratings, actually. We don't have that many of that. Um, make sure you're subscribed on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on TuneIn. I can't even list all the places this is, but wherever this is, there's something you can click on to tell the computers that you like it. And please do click on that because that helps other people see it. And uh, if you like poetry, you should want to spread poetry, and you spread poetry by clicking stuff. That's just the, the nature of the world these days. You used to tell your friends about books and share books. Now you just click stuff. That's all you got to do. Move your index finger on your mouse, and uh, that's all there is to it. So please click something right now. Um, now, before we start, we always like to have a warm-up poem. And our prompt poem for later today is um, write a poem after a color, uh, where a title is the color. And um, so for the prompt poem, there was sort of an obvious choice, I thought, um, which is Heather Bell's poem from um, Rattle Number 65 last fall. So it's about a year old. And this is uh, Heather Bell's poem, Crayola Has a Contest to Name Its Color Blue. And I will read that for you right now. Um, this is uh, Crayola Has a Contest to Name Its co New Color Blue by uh, Heather Bell. Varicose veins after birth, your hands during cancer, my unyielding legs during the rape, the beer I dream of, the joy I dream of, the sky when you said yes, oh yes, I do have cancer. And then you said, please leave me, leave me, a good name for the color blue. Selling my handguns, suicidal thoughts, eating white rice, too sad to make anything different. Leave me a perfect name for the color blue. Arrhythmia, seizures, the long, slow terror of a heart rate monitor. The way I casually whispered, Crayola has a contest about a new color and you knew it was blue even before I said it. You knew it was blue, a good name for the color. Because blue is sadness, but also the most relaxing color to paint your walls, research says. A doctor walks in and we joke, blue jokes, nothing off limits. The doctor says a good name for the color blue could be flatline, and I look at my shoes, blue laces. It's not funny, an interesting name for the color blue. Please don't go, a terrible name for the color blue. But that's what you suggested. So we all laughed, and I emailed Crayola while crying, and I feel like there's, there is lightning in my hands to make a suggestion like that, like the burning smell of death. You said it, isn't it funny how veins look blue under your skin, but the blood is red when released? Isn't it funny, a name for the color blue? The coldness of your feet after you're gone, your eyelids, the weird crust around your mouth, the hospital bill, my pen, throwing my purse at the doctor, saying, why couldn't you have done anything more? All good names for the color blue. A medium blue like Neptune, you said. Just look up. It helps us. It helps to look up. You laughed, a name for the color blue, a real winner, I think. The release of a heart from another heart, just perfect. 
And that's Heather Bell's poem for the name of the color blue uh, from rattle number 65. Of course, Heather Bell um, was winner of the Rattle Chapbook Prize a few years ago for Kill the Dogs. She's one of the poets that we publish pretty frequently. And um, so check out more of her work at Rattle. There's probably 10, 12 poems by Heather at rattle.com. Now, as I mentioned, today's guest is uh, Molly Fisk. And um, uh, Molly Fisk has appeared in Poets Respond twice. Um, she's, her newest project is this California Water and Fire, a climate crisis anthology. She's an Academy of American Poets Laureate Fellow, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellow, uh, the author of two poetry collections, The More Difficult Beauty and Listening to Winter. Um, she's also Poet Laureate, Inaugural Poet Laureate of Nevada County, California, and is currently Poet Laureate of radio station KVMR and Hell's Backbone Grill in Boulder, Utah. Um, she has, runs a poetry boot camp. She has taught more than 500 participants around the world, including the South Pole. And um, here she is, Molly Fisk. Hey, Molly, how are you doing tonight? I'm well, thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, do you want to start us out with a poem? Um, sure. Uh, wh- where do you want to go? Um, why don't I start with fire? Because we'll go elsewhere and then end with fire. Okay, sounds good. This is called Summer Lightning. Okay. In the morning, while it's still cool, we hose down the yard, watch a red sun crest the ridge, haloed in wildfire smoke that drifted 200 miles and stalled here against the mountains. A housefly is walking across the table, six tiny feet leaving tracks in the yogurt. One cat has already eaten a hummingbird. If you think about joy long enough, Maybe death will make sense, a matter of balance. The deer caught in a fire outside Redding, the rabbits and bear cubs, king snakes, and you know when 30 boats melt at anchor in Whiskey Town, fish in that lake have perished. Displaced blue herons, mergansers. I am not asking forgiveness for the hummingbird. I plant the flowers and water them. Who else would come for their nectar? And what cat wouldn't leap at the chance? In this world, there is order wherever you look. Cause, effect, logic, consequence. A dry winter and a car backfire or summer lightning ignites just one branch, which bends in the wind the flames create to brush another. A few hours later, it's 45 square miles and uncontained. The fire jumps the river right after supper aiming downtown, and cars crawl away from their homes in a dark lit by headlights and flung sparks, chased by the crackle and gathering roar, song of a small city burning. Thanks so much. That was Molly Fisk reading Summer Lightning. And um, so, Molly, I don't really know all that much about you. How did you get into poetry? Um, you know, have you been writing for a long time? Um, like, like what, what was it that made you become a poet that you're sitting here on a podcast now? It was that um, single poem that most middle-aged women have already fallen in love with from long since, which is Mary Oliver's Wild Geese. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a, pretty much of a cliche now, which is too bad. But that's what happens when something really is wonderful and works. It turns into something popular and then gets overused. Um, I I was in a fight with a friend of mine. I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
And um, she gave me that poem as a reconciliation move. First of all, the move was amazing to me. I wasn't used to people who felt like reconciling. <laughs> and then the poem was lovely. And I put it on my refrigerator, which is what we do in my family. And my mother saw it. And she put it on her refrigerator. She took a copy and put it on her refrigerator. And then later she gave me for some Christmas or my birthday, she gave me, um, how can I re not remember the name of this book? Mary Oliver's book, the poem is not in it. Uh, it's the book before the dream work, when the poem, the one the poem was in. I'm trying to remember, but I, I don't. It's the one she she won the National Book Award for. Yeah, yeah what is it called? Someone, mm -hmm. someone on the chat and tell us what it is. Yeah, I'm sure they can, yeah. Um, um, so I was 35. I had not written poetry before except as jokes in college a couple times. And I had just moved back to California from the East Coast where I'd, I'd been gone for about 20 years, 18 years. Um, and I started to go through all kinds of bad stuff. And something about being back in my own home landscape, I grew up in San Francisco, and that poem being so conversational and so accessible um, both gave me a lot of solace and made me think I could do it. Hmm. And so I tried to do it, and of course nobody can do it. It's Mary Oliver. But she makes it seem very easy. And then she tells you that it's that she does 80 drafts. I don't really believe oh, really? that. I think she might have 60 drafts, but I don't think she did 80 drafts. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> um, so I started writing and um, didn't know what I was doing at all and kept going for about six months. And then went and took a, a class, a writing class from Anne Lamott, who was not a poet in any way. Oh, wow. Um, but it was happening. I knew I knew about her because I was living in West Marin. And in her class, one of the things that she said over and over again was, you really all should be in writing groups. And a bunch of different people came up to me after the class and said, what you should be doing is taking Dorian Locks's writing group in her living room in Petaluma. So that's where I really started to learn how to be a poet was from Dorian. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, so, you know, most people I talk to, I usually ask, like, when did you start writing poetry? And most people say, like, as a as a kid, like at eight or nine years old, um, how, yeah. how did you, um, did you find any trouble sort of getting into the, the poetry sort of community at that point um, as an older, you know, at 35 starting out or? Um, or... I was senior at the time. <laughs> I'm 65, I don't think so anymore. Yeah. It was not. Um, I didn't find it hard. I just sort of took classes and went to open mics and wrote. I have um, I have a famous uncle. And so writing, and he's a writer, he was a writer, and writing was his job. And no one, he was so famous that nobody else could ever be like that. So it wasn't an option that I ever thought of. His name was Updike. Oh, really? So, yeah. Hmm. Not, not a relation, as you can tell from my nose, not being like his. But I married my mother's older sister. Oh, wow. wow. And we spent summers together for years and years. So that was sort of like the, the example of being a writer was that. And therefore, it was unattainable and already taken. Um, 
but it did. I, I was exposed to some poetry because he wrote light verse. And my mother was a big Robert Frost fan, so especially when she was upset. So when she pulled out the Oxford Book of American Verse, we all left the house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> funny. It's interesting you mentioned that because my um, the first two books I bought were both given to me by my grandmother. And it, one was um, a Robert Frost book, and then the other was Mary Oliver. Um, I think Deborah Kiva suggests House of Light, maybe. And Sarah Fisk says maybe the Never. new and selected. And so maybe it was... It's American. Primitive. American Primitive. In American Primitive. The one before Dreamland. Ah, okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Deborah and Sarah. <laughs> um, well, do you want to read another poem? I do. This is called God Speaks to the Rope Swings of Summer. God speaks to the rope swings of summer in his gentlest voice reminding them about change, about fallow fields and the quiet everything needs to grow stronger at facing life and death, uncertainty, joy, obstruction. This one, hanging straight from its branch over Oregon Creek, is listening. He mentions the way opposing twists will hold each other longer and how knots keep children's feet from slipping. Three-ply, four, hemp or nylon, it doesn't matter. The creek sparkles on. Wood smoke dilutes the sky's clear blue. A madrone leaf slowly spins downstream, oblivious and holy. And that was God Speaks to the Rope Swings of Summer by Molly Fist. Thanks for sharing that, Molly. Another excellent poem. Um, what What is your writing composition like? Because I was reading that one and, and some of the other ones that, that I've, I'm familiar with of your work. Um, you remind me of poets who, I don't know, I think of them as sort of jazz poets almost, who sort of just write by ear and sort of massage the words afterward. Is that kind of how it goes? Like, do you... Um, like, like, what is your process like? Like, how do you how do you start a poem, and, and how does it progress as you're working on it? I'm pretty much somebody who writes about what's right in front of her, mm -hmm. which is why poets respond is such a wonderful place for me to go. Um, I really believe in the, the immediacy. It's just how I work. Other people are really good at doing other things, but what I'm good at is looking around and feeling and seeing what's happening and writing it down. Mm -hmm. And I tend to be a very, very low draft person. Stuff comes out nearly whole. Um, it took me a long time and it was wonderful to learn how to revise. Steve Cowett taught me how to revise with his book in the palm of your hand. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that was a big poetry lesson that turned out to be a pretty good life lesson too. So, cause I'm always somebody who wanted to just go with the first take. And I learned a lot not doing that. <laughs> so, so how, like, what advice do you have for, for not going to the first take? Because I kind of am the same way. I'm sort of a first thought, best thought. Um, like, I kind of, like, try to get in the zone. And then once I'm in the zone, if it works, it kind of comes out. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And, um, and, and then I can't get back. Um, and, and that's the problem with revision is that you sort of can't get back in the same place. It's like stepping in the same river twice or something. Um, so, so how do you, how did you end up doing that? Like going from, from not revising to be able to revise? I had to wait. I, it was okay for me to write immediately and get almost there. And then I had to wait, um, 
maybe even a couple of weeks before I looked at a poem again. And I always fall in love with them immediately. It's like the best poem I've ever written. Mm -hmm. Or if it doesn't work, you know how you're writing along and you take a left turn and you're like, oh no, I missed the exit. I can't, I can't get back there. Mm -hmm. so I hate that. <laughs> but um, there's a fly here. A fly buzzed before I died. Um, I can go back after a couple of weeks and look at something and say, that doesn't make any sense. Or how come I used the word fatigue four times in this, in one, you know, you go find your, your ticks, your, the things that you say all the time. Like Mary Oliver uses the blue shoulders of the pond way too often. Um, and it was a wonderful thing to find that out about her because it made her so imperfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I look for my own ticks. One of them is I start lines with of, I want a good word at the end of a line so I would say the, the explosion and then of chrysanthemums or something like that. So I have to go through my poems and, and get all those ofs away from the first line somehow. Mm -hmm. um, I write a lot like myself and I have to watch out for that. I can produce a canned Molly Fisk poem easily and that's not enough. Um, that happened to me about 15 years in when I, I was like, I can write a beautiful poem and I can write a beautiful poem about something hideous in my sleep. And I have to figure out how to grow a little bit here, how to stretch and how to jostle myself. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to shop around my second book and was having a terrible time with the order. So I hired Molly Peacock oh, wow. to help at that time, she was helping people with book order. And she um, she said, you know, your work, I know, I can tell you don't like form. You've written in form two or three times, and I can tell it's not your style. But I think you would have a good time with a container of some sort, which is what form can be for people. So she said, why don't you try syllabics? Hmm. Because secret form, it's not something you recognize all the time. Um, and it's and you can make it any number of syllables you want. Syllabics, if you guys don't know this, is just counting syllables per line. So if you look at some of my poems from the second book, which did get published eventually, and the third one, which hasn't found a publisher, but I'm working on that part of it, you know, some lines, some poems will be all 17-syllable lines, or eight is a standard one because it's the beat uh, number of beats that you have in the line of a hymn. It's very American to have an eight-beat poem. That's interesting. I was talking to um, A.E. Stallings just the other day for an interview that's going to be in our winter issue. And she talked about syllabics, which is something I've never really gotten into. And she, she, she suggested that it's, it's easier if you start with an odd number of syllables. Do you find that's the case? Because then you don't fall into, um, oh. into iambics. Right. You don't, it doesn't get sing mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really like odd numbered syllable counts. And you'll, if you see me, I, I used to write in coffee shops all the mm -hmm. time because I felt comfortable and I grew up in a house where there was a lot going on and the dishwasher was running and you had to do your homework at the table anyway. So I feel like that kind of white noise helps my brain. Um, 
but if you see me writing in a notebook and then counting things out on the table, that's what I'm doing. It's, it's a syllabic move. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so I should say, if anybody has any questions for uh, Molly Fisk, um, please leave them in the chat window. I'm watching both Facebook and YouTube. If you're on other platforms, I am not watching those because I can only have so many windows up at once. Um, but Sarah Fisk, I wonder, I assume maybe a relation there, asked if you could say something about your pioneer poems in the process of writing them. All right. Um, I'm writing a book and it's almost finished. That's a big, long narrative of a pioneer couple, uh, a second generation pioneer couple. Their parents came across the country, but they just moved from Oregon down into northeastern California. And it's I'm not sure why I started this, except that I did read the little house books over and over again mm -hmm. as a child. And I used to draw pictures of log cabins and put all the furniture in different places. Um, and I used to make ragdoll. I mean, there's, there's background here, but it's not poetic background. I started writing these, I think I started in 04 and wrote about 50 of them and then stopped cold. And then I picked it up again maybe three years ago. And it's about, so it's about a young couple and they, get married and then move to where they're going to live and then work their heads off. So it's this combination of work and love and getting to know each other in the high plains around Cedarville, California, Modoc County. Hmm. And, and what, what like research did you do or what drew you to, to that subject? Um, like, did you, did you read, have you gone to like, like how do you know about what pioneer life was like? I knew a lot from before just because of I, I'd always liked reading those stories, mm -hmm. some personal accounts from the time and some novels about things. And a friend of mine had turned me on to the young adult tradition of writing a book in, in poem form, um, which and and also um, C.D. Wright had written a book in a whole narrative. Um, and I talked to her once at the community of writers in Squaw Valley about what that was like to do that. I've had to do some research. I still can't figure out what kind of wheat would grow in the winter up at, at 4,000 feet mm -hmm. there. And I've talked to some of my local farmers, but nobody's quite got it. Um, I knew how to do a lot of the practical stuff. I knew how to weave and I knew how to, I haven't grown flax and made it into linen myself, but I've read enough about it so that I could describe it. So it's a lot of stuff like that yeah. where, you know, things have remained in my in the back of my brain for years and years. Yeah, it's interesting because, it, you know, until we started doing the Rattle Chapbook Prize, I didn't realize how much I love a book about a theme that has sort of an arc. When you, when you see all the books together, you sort of realize how, like, I don't want to, to only publish books that have a theme, but we kind of keep doing it because the most interesting ones do. And um, and so I'm looking forward to reading reading that. Um, is it close to finished or um, do you have a ways to go it's on it? It's being finished. I probably can finish it by Christmas. And it's called Walking Wheel. Walk oh, that's a great title, too. Um, Big type spinning wheel. I don't think you sent any poems from that. Um, did you... Um, well, well, do you want to read it's, a different I, poem then, or, or something to that you did send? I I would be delighted. Okay. How about the the most unpioneer poem that I have here is called Phil, who loved the giants. 
The bra I took off at 4.45 through the sleeve of my dress and put down somewhere, I find on my grandmother's hutch, in the kitchen, incongruous, surrounded by jars of jam, yellow plum, blackberry merlot, and a half-finished painting of peonies that don't resemble peonies, more like an enormous hydrangea. I've learned it's very hard to see what you're actually seeing, much less to reproduce it. My paints are asleep in their wheeled cart, four canvases gessoed and ready for me to take up a brush, but I haven't. Oh well. Now the sky is almost completely devoid of color, just the last pale grayish peach as sunset slides into home plate for the night, almost the color of this once a crew but washed too often underwire, I'm dropping into the trash so I don't turn into my mother, whose underwear got replaced only when it fell off her. Perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned that, but it's a sorry world that revolves on an axis of secrets. I say, spit them out. And for me, who lives for color, that dingy thing had become kind of a nightmare. I used a baseball analogy there in honor of my painting teacher, Phil, who loved the Giants. I'm a Red Sox fan myself. Phil would have said that I could turn one hydrangea back into seven peonies if I felt like trying in under an hour. He was smart that way, knew who to console and who'd respond to a dare. Yesterday, he died. If I could paint him back into life and health, I'd do it more alizarin crimson in the flesh tones of his face, instead of cadmium yellow. We spent a lot of time on flesh, a lot of time on water, the Yuba River's myriad blues, ochre and viridian, granite, shade and sunlight. He told me once to go outside and watch the clouds instead of inventing them, so I did. Blew my mind. A storm was rolling in, green and gold, nearly black, five entirely different purples. He was like that. Try it. See for yourself. You have my permission to screw up. Which I echo all the time to younger writers and to the lined face in the mirror that is not my mother's, the one that doesn't need more crimson yet. Please go wild and make a mess. You will learn so much that's valuable. And that was Phil, who loved the Giants. Thanks for sharing that one, Molly. Um, one, one thing I wanted to talk about, um, I, I read that you um, t- taught in poets, with poets in the schools for uh, 12 years. Um, what was your experience mm-hmm. like with that? Like, like we do the um, Young Poets Anthology, which is so much fun, uh, because kids have this way, at least until they get to be like self-conscious or something, <laughs> of, of, of writing really interesting things and having sort of surprising insights. Um, and I, I did poets in the schools. I guess it was um, writers in the schools with Red Hen Press, so not the same thing as poets in schools, which is a different organization. But um, so I taught. I think I did three maybe times with kids, like a, maybe a sixth grade, a third grade, and a in a ninth grade or something like that. And it was just so much fun. Um, yeah. What was your experience like with doing that? And, and what did you learn from from working with with children? Huh. I loved teaching with poets in the schools, and I was always a little bit afraid of everybody, of, of the kids. I don't have my own kids. And 
there's something about a whole big group of kids that has there's there's so much momentum in that there's so much contained power that it, it felt as though I really had to watch out and be careful. Having said that, um, teaching with co poets in the schools, I didn't teach any higher after a while than sixth grade because I felt like those are the people who still will be nice to you. I mean, they're smart, they know what cool is, and sometimes they have siblings who are cool, but they are not cool yet, and they'll still raise their hands. So I, I did a certain amount of self-protection around that. I love high school age kids, but not to teach them, especially when they don't want to be taught. It was just really fun to be with their brains. I mean, the youngest ones had the most amazing things that they thought and said, and it, it was so fascinating. I went around stealing stuff all the time, or just stealing the, the openness of their thought. Mm -hmm. It was inspiring to do that. It's really fun. I mean, one of the things about poetry is you'll often teach a class and it'll be somebody who isn't popular or isn't good at the other kinds of classes who will really tune into poetry and be good at it. And it was really fun to have that kind of influence on people to be able to, to pull somebody out of a sixth grade slump and have them find out that they were really good at writing poetry. They had the right kind of brain for it. So I loved that part. Yeah, it's just interesting that you mentioned that sixth grade, because that seems like in our experience, the, the window where it sort of breaks off. And, and I don't know if I, I assume it's sort of a self-consciousness that develops when um, when you hit that age and you sort of go from just focusing on your own life, maybe to like how everybody thinks about you or something like that. And then but you can hear the difference in the voice. And then we sort of get so there's this little window. It's kind of funny. But like up until maybe 10 or 11 years old. The poems are great. Then they get really self-conscious at like 11, 12, 13, 14. And then we start getting good ones again when they're 15 because they sort of know more and are mature or something. Um, what, what is it in the development that makes, why is that the line, do you think? I guess, is that puberty? I guess it's puberty. <laughs> That's all it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's so interesting. So, so why... Um, can you, first of all, I don't think people probably don't know what Poets in the Schools is, California Poets in the Schools organization. Can you just explain a little bit about that for people who are probably curious? It's um, been around since the mid-60s, I think 66. It's an organization that um, hires poets, working poets with books out who write and do readings and all that stuff, and uh, sends them into schools, K through 12, all over California. And they have it organized in a way where there are people in different counties and people in different school systems, and it's very um, well put together. When I was doing it, I was doing it in Marin County and then up here in Nevada County for a little while, but mostly in Marin. And I ended up really wanting to do Juvenile Hall. So I taught with a poet, Kathy Evans, in Juvenile Hall for six or seven years. Um, and we got some grants from the county to do that. Part of the problem is that the mostly the poet, him or herself, has to find the funding. Mm -hmm. So, and that's something that's been harder and harder over the last years. Oh, has it? That's um, that's, that's sad to hear. Like I, I remember, um, I went to yeah, I went to because I think I think writers in the schools with the Red Hand Press ended maybe. So I went to California poets in the schools to see what they do. And, um, and they sort of help you with how to, to ask for funding, um, you know, so how to approach like a school board or superintendents and things like that. 
Um, but then you sort of have to pitch yourself. That's still the case, I guess. And, and the funding's drying up. That's that's too bad to hear. Well, funding for the arts has been drying up for a long time everywhere. So it's just one of those t- trends that we're part of. Have you tried it all um, uh, with homeschooled kids? Because I know a lot of the things they have, they actually have money, which is, which, you know, because they have um, money from the state for sort of replacing the social and, and arts stuff. So I know like my, um, my son was in jujitsu for the longest time until this COVID thing. And um, all the homeschool kids, they, they got their jujitsu paid for as like gym class. And, and so <laughs> and, and so I think maybe you could do art the same way with homeschool kids. And especially, uh, you know, in a place like um, Nevada City, maybe they have um, homes- probably a homeschool sort of network there. There are lots of homeschools and charter schools. Nobody's going to school here anymore mm-hmm. right now. So it, would, it wouldn't work now. But, yeah, that's a good option. Um, well, well, let's um, let's move on and talk about um, this anthology, which was the main reason that, that we had you on today. You sent this back in uh, the spring. And I said, um, maybe we should do it um, during fire season, which, of course, and then you had a fire and then I had a fire. And um, and so now we finally I think you're you're safe from the fire right now. Right. It's, it's, it's completely contained, I assume, the one near you. Yeah. 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 Ours is like 80 percent and it's not threatening our town anymore. But um, <laughs> but I don't know if that was a good idea to do it during fire season. But um, but this is the anthology here. Um, California Fire and Water, a, a climate crisis anthology. Can you explain a little bit about how um, this anthology came to be? Um, I was the poet laureate of Nevada County. And we got this message on email and Facebook and all over the place saying that there was a new grant for Poets Laureate. And they didn't say how much it was, but they said, you need to have a project and you need to do this and that. And, and they gave out the, you said, it said that you need to be the Poet Laureate of a town or a city or, or a state or a, uh, an Indian, a Native American nation or a protector. I mean, they went on and on about being the, the poet laureate of this, that, and the other thing. And they did not mention counties. And I was, of course, appalled. And so I wrote back and said, what, what is wrong with counties, you people? <laughs> there are millions of county poets laureate everywhere in California, and I'm one of them, and I think you should expand this. And I thought they would do that. I actually thought they would probably do that because it made sense. Mm-hmm. But I thought they would do it the following year. And they wrote back and said, oh, we've changed the rules. It's also for county poets laureate. And then I was like sunk because it was very close to the deadline and I had made all this noise. So I was in the grocery store parking lot and I thought, well, all right, if I were going to do a project, what I would do is get some money, hire teachers from poets in the schools and send them into classrooms because I think the kids who are going through these fires are in trouble and nobody's paying attention to that. And so I would try to get them to write about what's been going on and then you know that's one sort of piece of the project but then of course if you've got a bunch of poems you should probably make an anthology so i said well then i would make an anthology and if it's only kid poems it won't have that far of a reach but if i got some adult california poets involved then it would be bigger and more saleable easier to promote etc and it would be a nice mix um so I did that. I made the anthology with the help of my friends. I've made my own books 
from my radio essays for the last eight or 10 years. So I know how to do that in my sleep. And, um, and then I said, well, if you have a book, you have to have a reading. And it's 2020. So why don't we have 20 readings all over California from this book? And the proceeds of the book sales, I had the money from the grant to make the book, but the proceeds from the sales could go to sending the book to public libraries and school libraries and prison libraries. Mm -hmm. So I wrote all that down, and I got two recommendations on the day before the thing was due, and I sent it in, and I won. And I was one of 13 people, poets laureate around the country, and it turned out one of the reasons they didn't tell us about the money was because they were giving us quite a lot of money. Oh, really? And they gave, they gave us each the money for our project, and then they gave us each $45,000 more than oh, that. Oh, wow. For our own work. Wow, that's amazing. It's totally amazing. And this is because Elizabeth Alexander, mm -hmm. a poet, is the head of the Mellon Foundation. And she and um, Jen Benka, who runs... Um, the Academy of American Poets. I don't know how the, the idea was formed, but clearly poetry and poets and promoters of poetry have been putting their heads together to try to get more money going for poets. Wow, that's amazing. So, I've never heard of anything like that happening, I think, in, in 15 years of being in this, this business. Well, that was the first year. 2019 was the first year. And the there's another... I hate this word, but there's another cohort. There's another group of poets laureate who have um, gotten these grants in mm, early May, I think. Mm -hmm. And and so their projects will be announced and, and figured out. We'll be able to see see what they're doing probably by the beginning of February. Oh wow! Yeah, that's. It's so how long have you um, been? been in like fire areas like how long has fire affected your life i know you mentioned living in marin county which fires affect marin county too and then and then nevada city um what is your personal experience with with wildfire and evacuating um is this the first i know you were evacuated last a few weeks ago was that the first time i assume not but was it was the first time i've been afraid several times but that was the first time i actually had to leave my house I don't know what Tim is doing, but it's very interesting to watch. <laughs> oh, I, I <laughs> muted it, but I uh, I had to close the window. Ironically, because our neighbors got his uh, fireplace burning, so the fire, the, the wood smoke was coming into my ah. office, so I had to shut the window, <laughs> um, which which would have been nice if we had, like, smell-o-vision, and everybody could hear, right. you know, smell the smoke, but but it was only me, and I didn't want the uh, lung damage, so, <laughs> so I shut the window. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you, so, so go ahead and, and finish what you were saying. So I've been afraid for the last, probably only the last five years have I been afraid locally of wildfire. Two years ago, we were right probably 30 miles from Paradise as the Crow Flies, yeah. so the campfire there was a real wake-up call. People moved to our town a lot. We had a lot of, um, a lot of the animals were at our fairgrounds. They moved a lot of um, the livestock up here. So I got a sense of it then. Um, last year was a little calmer here, but not calmer anywhere else in the state. Mm -hmm. And then this year we had a fire that started about five miles from my house. And and I kind of didn't believe it. I mean, I, I have four cats and one of them is very old and I'm not as spry as I used to be. And the idea that suddenly 
I needed to think about maybe getting all of them into their carriers, which I had by the front door. Mm -hmm. Still, it was like I, I had prepared in a way that was like a rehearsal for a play I was never going to have to be in. And then it turned out I had to be in it. So I jumped up and did it and got all the cats and they made a lot of noise. And it was, I have a tape recording of the noise. I mean, a phone recording mm -hmm. that they make. Yeah, yeah, we, um, we've been evacuated. Well, we've been in evacuation zones uh, three times now. We had to leave once for the blue cut fire. And it's interesting, you talk about the, um, you know, the effect it has on children. And I think about it all the time, but my daughter's, one of her first memories is probably going to be that because she was in first grade. It was like the third day of her first grade. And all of a sudden the fire started at the bottom of our valley, maybe seven miles away at like 9 a.m., and by noon, it was we were evacuating, and um, so we grabbed her at the school and loaded up the car. And um, and you mentioned in your foreword about the um, the sort of psychological effect it has, like the the spacey feeling. I can't remember how you phrase it, but but like it's the only time I filled up a gas tank with the car still running. I forgot to turn the car off, and I was filling it up. I was like, oh my god, the car's still running, <laughs> because I mean, it, you're, it's just crazy having to worry about just everything, you know. Um, so do you want to read a poem from the anthology to sort of, um, share the, the experience like, that, that these poets have been through? Yeah. I'd actually love to read one by Santa Cruz poet, Gary Young. And I read with him at a reading, um, a zoom reading maybe a month ago. Mm -hmm. And he was just having to evacuate again from those fires in Santa Cruz. Um, this is called Untitled. The fire spared our house, turned toward the winery, and bolted down the canyon. Everyone assumed the grapes on the ridge were a loss. But when I open a bottle of Pinot from the vineyard here on Battle Mountain, 2009, the year of the blaze, the scent of ash is on the cork, and I taste the true terroir of home, sun and rain, minerality from the granite soil, and catastrophe. In this vintage, there's dark chocolate and briar in the glass, strawberry and plum in the mouth, and in the finish, smoke. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great ending with that poem. That was untitled by Gary Young from the uh, California Fire and Water Anthology. Um, what was the process like collecting the poems for this issue? Did you, did you put out like a call for submissions somewhere? Um, did you contact people individually? Um, and then you got poems from children too. How did that all, how did it work? Cause you have so much work here. There's great poets and, and then, and then kids too from school. So how did you do that? It's a big undertaking. I think. I had the teachers choose the kid poems and I gave them a deadline and then I put out a call, and I was very scatterbrained about it. I put it mostly out on Facebook and to people in my sort of diaspora. Yeah. Um, and the famous people I asked for poems, but I, I also, with the, the more famous people, I also went and looked for their poems that would work for the book and then asked for a particular one and then tried to sweet talk them into not charging me money for mm -hmm. it sometimes and then everybody else was just they heard about it and they sent me poems and some of the famous poets did that too which was incredibly nice of them mm -hmm. and then I had to do a lot of work I had uh, four 
editors helping me and they did the first pass through everybody. But I was trying to balance it out regionally and racially and you know, all kinds of different aspects. I wanted to be as inclusive as I could possibly be, even though I'm white and live in a rural county. And I didn't, there was one thing I didn't pay any attention to. And somebody, um, one of my editors of a magazine that I really love, and I really loved him, but he, I sent him the anthology and he wrote me this sort of strained letter and, and talked about how there were so many women in the book and so few men and that he thought that was really a terrible idea. And I empathized with him, but I also felt like, how does it feel, buddy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you have a nice shout out for um, Poet Respond in the forward, which I appreciate. Thanks for that. But it's the same thing with yeah. Poet Respond. And um, I wonder, I, I've always wondered about that, actually, that, that the majority of submissions and I think for regular issues, the gender thing, it's always interesting because um, more um, women submit and follow and subscribe to Rattle than men. It's like 60-40. But then um, men submit more often. And that's that's how the gender disparity ends up. It, it switches. And so even though more women submit, more men submit over and over again, which is just always yeah. interesting to me. It's sort of like a like, you know, one evidence of that whole male privilege thing. Like, 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 I think men more likely feel like they, you know, if you get a rejection letter, it's like an affront and here's some more poems, jerk, you know, and, and women maybe don't submit as often. I, I've always wondered about that. But then for Poets Respond, um, the women just dominate Poets Respond. And, um, and I wonder if maybe it's, I don't know, um, like, like having connection to the, I don't know. I don't, why, why do you think that was, that more women ended up in the anthology than men? Because more women follow me. Oh, yeah. Well, that's an easier explanation for sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, more white people follow me. So that's part of why I had to go searching for different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. oh. It's really, um, it's, and I did it, you know, the book is in alphabetical order. I could only take so many people. Um, I had to say no to some friends and, uh, and there was only one person of all the people I had to talk to one person who was not someone I knew before got really mad at me. And, um, that was interesting because I, people don't usually get mad at me and that was an interesting experience. <laughs> and also it was like, I've been an editor before and I know what editors do. They're making, making something and they don't need everything that's around to put it together. So you have to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely my world, too. I think there are definitely more people mad at me in the world than not at any given moment. I think that's kind of the nature of um, of making something, you know, that has a lot of contributors. Do you want to read another poem from, um, from the anthology? Sure. I'll read you my poem from the anthology, okay. which is called Particulate Matter. Yeah, and this was from Poets Respond, speaking of Poets Respond. And that's why I wanted to thank you in the forward. Particulate matter. If all you counted were tires on the cars left in driveways and stranded beside the roads, melted dashboards and taillights, oil pans, window glass, seatbelt clasps, the propane tanks in everyone's yards, though we didn't hear them explode, R13 insulation, paint inside and out, 
the liquor store's plastic letters in puddled colors below their charred sign. Each man-made sole of every shoe in all those closets. The laundromats, washers, round metal doors. But then Arco, Safeway, Walgreens, the library, everything they contained. How many miles of electrical wire and PVC pipe swirling into the once blue sky? How many linoleum acres? Not to mention the valley oaks, the ponderosas, all the wild hearts and all the tame, their bark and leaves and hooves and hair and bones, their final cries, and our neighbors, so many particular, precious, irreplaceable lives that despite ourselves, we're inhaling. Yeah, that was particulate matter from um, from this anthology and, and also from Poets Respond. And um, I remember that when you submitted that poem, we, we published a bunch of poems about um, um, fires because every really every fall we publish like three or four poems because there's, I mean, it's, it's fire season and, and the fires are out of control. And um, I remember reading that, though, when we had to evacuate um, for the Blue Cut Fire, we had to, we went to Las Vegas where my my in-laws lived at the time. And even in Las Vegas, we could look up and see the fi- the smoke, you know, the, the plume, not just like drift smoke, but like, you know, three hours away, it like followed us over our head as we were evacuating. And then and it hadn't occurred to me um, at the time, but I, but the vision of it is very strong in my head. And uh, and then reading your poem, thinking of all the things that are um, included in there. It's just such a um, such a poignant um, way to describe the fire situation that's going on here. Um, I'm wondering about the um, a climate climate crisis anthology. It's such a complicated issue, and um, and I, I feel like it's um. Why did you choose to focus on the climate aspect of it? I feel like it's like an ecological crisis because um, forest management comes into play, invasive species right. comes into play. Um, what was it about about the climate angle, sort of that that you were drawn to? I think it was mostly that that's what I was hearing about mm-hmm. during the time I made from the from the moment I got the grant to when I produced the book. The phraseology moved from climate change to climate crisis. So I, I changed the title. Hmm. It was Climate Change Anthology. Um, I'm pretty much not involved in a lot of uh, ancillary issues or larger issues. I mean, I certainly think about ecology, but I wasn't thinking about ecology in a big way. Mm-hmm. And the what I was thinking about a lot was we're going to be in trouble. These are symptoms. These are the California symptoms of the trouble that are the most obvious flooding and wildfire. And I didn't think about anything like the background of it. And partly because I veer away from looking deeply into political intrigue Mm -hmm. and partly because I don't, you know, I was just doing a bunch of other things. And so what, what was at the surface is what I got, into my mind. Um, The thing I think about as I was doing the book and now it's truly happening, I was thinking about that we're going to have a huge refugee crisis in this country because the the disasters are going to come faster and faster and we won't be able to have enough help from the government such as it might be now. But at the time I was thinking about a government that worked. 
we're not going to have that kind of support. There won't be enough of it for how many crises we have. Mm -hmm. So I was also thinking about the displacement of the people in this anthology. You know, there are poems by kids who lost their houses and poems about people being worried about losing their houses. Hello, Sid. <laughs> Do you have a cat cameo? Would you like to come over here and meet everybody? This is Sid. Oh, hi, Sid. <laughs> There's no room to be alive at all, but poetry's keeping him oh. alive. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I always feel like um, the the fire is sort of the I think it's um, emblematic of all that's sort of wrong, like the problems that we face. It's sort of a metonymous, you know, like it's, it stands in for the problems because it's it's not just, you know, it's putting everything off to the future, sort of. It's not worrying about the climate, not worrying about forest management. You know, the, the era of fire suppression is a major part of the problem where we um ended the fire regime, the natural, every 20 years or so, there's a fire that clears out the underbrush. We let it build up. Like the fire we had uh, this year was, um, it started out on the other side of the mountain, like 25 miles away. And then it just ripped through this area that hadn't had a fire in over a hundred years in recorded history. Like nobody had recorded the last time it had a fire. And that's not natural. Like that's part of the problem too is that we don't like plan for the future. Like everything is sort of the CEO mentality where it's like, what are my, what's my profit margin this quarter? And, and so we end up spending like billions of dollars putting out, you know, containing these fires that don't cause more damage when we could be, you know, mitigating fires, mitigating the risk ahead of time for much less. But, but the motivations are all out of whack. And I don't know how, it's just such a complicated issue. Um, so it's interesting. Welcome to Capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you want to read a couple more poems from the anthology? We have a bunch. We, we're running up on time, actually, already. I don't know how that's the case, but um, do you want to read? I have one of the kid poems. Yeah, from that'd the be great. Anthology. Let's do two more poems so we don't, we, you know, we finish, okay. but yeah. Well, we've got those two from Stella and Katie. Yeah, that, that too. We'll call them up. This is called Ember of the Sun by Aislinn Yuan. She's a third grader from Francis Scott Key Elementary School in San Francisco. I am the basket made of bear grass in the northern lights. I am the bowl made of spruce roots at night. I am the orange fire that burns through the maple forest. I am the forest of tricks. I am the beads made of the embers of the sun. Wow, the beads made of the embers of the sun. How old was she? You said she was a student? Third grade, so eight. Oh, wow, third grade. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, a, a wonderful poem. Um, well, should we move on to the um, the people we were going to call, I guess? And um, yeah, okay. Well, thanks so much for being our guest today, Molly. And we'll call up, um, I have two poets to share poems from the Anthology, but thanks so much for joining us and uh, and sharing this with all of our readers. It's really, uh, appreciate it. Yeah. I will be on the other side of the audience bar. And <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for talking to you, and, and I'll talk to you soon. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah, so now we're going to call. We have the open mic still coming up, and, and before we sort of transition, I should tell you that um, the phone numbers to call in the open mic are um, um, send a chat message to Rattle Poetry, all one word, over Skype. 
or uh, use the phone, 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times, and I will call you back. If you use Skype, just let me a message, and I will call you back when the time is right. And you can send your poem to openmicatrattle.com. The uh, prompt for today uh, was um, write a poem based on a color. And so that'll be your prompt for today. But first, we have some some poets to call up from this anthology. We plan on doing that at 7 o'clock, and the timing is exactly perfect. So let's call up Katie Brown um, from this anthology. Her poem is Remembering Water. She's a poet from Davis, California. Hello? Hey, is this Katie Brown? And would you like to share your poem uh, from the anthology? It is, and I would. Excellent. So so first of all, let me ask you, though, Katie, um, what was your connection to this anthology? And, and, and what's your connection to fire in California? Um. My connection to the anthology is uh, I, I was one of those that responded to Molly's prompt on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And um, I had, just the year before, a while back, experienced the, the ash fall from the Paradise Fire. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was born and raised in Chico, and I, I started crying when I heard about the fire and didn't stop. Um, and I, I was just, um, I live in Davis and the, the smoke and the ash came all this way. And, um, in one trip that I made into Sacramento during that time, um, I took a photograph of the sun just barely visible through the smoke. Um, and it was one of the most powerful experiences in terms of fire that um, that I can imagine. Um, this recent uh, series of fires, however, the one up in Nevada City that uh, left so much smoke in the air and so much ash everywhere, even here, the the amount was just unbelievable. Um, so it was. It, but but interestingly enough, it wasn't the fire part that attracted me. It was um, as a kid growing up in Chico, we always had floods everywhere around us. Mm. And um, when I moved here in Davis, we started having the drought years. And I, it just went on and on. And um, at one point, I thought, you know, it's never going to rain again. Mm. And what are we going to do? So all of those um, all of those feelings kind of came up when I saw Molly's request for poems. Yeah, that area, um, speaking of floods, do you know about the, the great flood of, was it 1832 or 1862? I can't remember what year it was, but from the arc storm and it rained for like 30 days straight in that Chico area. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you're definitely, you know, there's a once in a hundred year um, flood zone. And I guess, you know, that it's due almost. So I hope that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> do you want to do you want to read your poem now? Remembering Water? Sure. Remembering Water. Remember the world of water, emerald ponds, aqua seas, turquoise bays, opal falls. Remember the meadows alive with garter snakes and salamanders. And the rain, gentle showers, 
steely downpours, Virga, that never reaches ground. Remember the world alive with the sounds of water in motion. We will tell our grandchildren about this world on desert nights under an arid moon. I was remembering water from the California Fire and Water Anthology. Another great ending. Um, one of those sort of it, it, it hits you like a sucker punch. Uh, thanks for sharing that poem, Katie. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Um, and I hope you can call in in the future and share other poems, too. Okay. Okay, good night. Good night. Okay, and then we have, um, I should say, too, if there's anybody else who um, is in this anthology, I asked um, I asked Molly if she could have a couple people um, lined up to call in so we could see, hear some other voices from this anthology. But if anybody else is watching and you would like to call in, you can do so, too. Just send me a chat message over Skype if you want to be on video, rattle poetry, all one word. Just say, hey, I'd like to read a poem from the anthology, and we'd be happy to have you. Or give me a call at 818-850-7727. Let it ring a couple times, and I will call you back. And uh, that's how we'll do it. So um, if anyone's watching, feel free to call in if you have a poem. Or let's just, let's just say, if you have a poem and you're watching about, um, about wildfire and about the climate crisis, which probably most poets do, to be honest, um, feel free to share that. We have a bunch of incoming people. Um, Let's see. But let's call up the other person that we were going to talk to, which is Stella um, Baratlis, who is the Poet Laureate of Modesto. Uh, let's call up Stella right now and share her poem from the anthology. And then we'll move on to the truly open lines. Hello. Hey, this is Tim Green with Rattle. Um, did you want to share your poem from uh, the California Fire and Water Anthology? I would love to. Yes. Excellent. So, um, so, Stella, you're the Poet Laureate of Modesto. And, um, I so sure I, am. And it, it, what what is your experience um, with with fire and the climate crisis? Like, what what made you contribute to this anthology? Well, <laughs> well, first of all, I live in California, so just by default, I have a connection to yeah. There's kind of there's kind of no way to avoid it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I haven't experienced you know the catastrophic loss of you know a fire in my community. Um, but lots of friends and loved ones have um, around me. And um, also we, there's flooding here and drought that affects every, you know, the um, agriculture. And so um, it's definitely something that is a part of our lives here. Um, and I, I found out about the anthology when um, Molly connected with me um, because I'm the Poet Laureate of Modesto um, and there were many people from my region who had submitted a poem to this anthology. So Molly had asked if I could organize a reading um, to celebrate the publication of the book. And we had that all lined up and ready to go. And then um, we kind of, the reading was organized, uh, was set for right when the um, pandemic kind of caused um, a, a shutdown of, you know, all events that <laughs> involved audiences. Yeah, so I was going to ask. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Molly mentioned she had twenty readings lined up, and I, I was going to ask how many she ended up being able to do before everything was shut down. But, but probably not many, if if any at all. I yeah, I think that the first one was set for April first. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, and so things shut down around here in the middle of March, pretty much. So um, I don't know if she ever ended up having any. We certainly did not have ours in the next show. 
Yeah. Well, well, hopefully we'll we'll yeah. get um get out of this COVID crisis, you know, at some point in the not too different distant future, and then uh, we can sort of resume all these readings. But for the time being, I'm really glad to be able to share this book um, on the Rattlecast. So your your poem was uh, root cause failure analysis. Do you want to go ahead and read? Yes. it? I'd love to. Okay. Root cause failure analysis. Define influx, an arrival or entry of large numbers of people, or an inflow of water into a river, lake, or the sea. I'm trying to tell you all the ways a thing can go wrong. How great blue herons are landing on mats of soil and plants right now in Sacramento Slough. No matter how many temporary emergency influx shelters are built to house the human overflow, to manage the effects of human devastation syndrome. I am trying to tell you, my love, we are tule berms created by years of peat moss accumulation, dense tangle of delta weeds, our hearts a weathered lay down in the flues, open, open to children, and yet can it get more catastrophic? The influx inevitable and even approaching the task from a multidisciplinary perspective, the spaces where physics, soil, scars, fluids, and distortions intersect. Loss is breaking our hearts. Rising seas and powerful currents tear the roots, wash the soil. Oh, everyone, I'm trying to do this thing, not limit my understanding to the engineering environment, Instead, the root cause may exist right here, where we refuse to allow a great blue heron to walk into our thicket of nerves, refuse to allow it to change us. Thanks so much for sharing that. And once again, um, that was uh, Stella Baratlis reading Root Cause Failure Analysis. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing that poem, Stella. Thanks so much, Tim, for having us all. Yeah, definitely, definitely my pleasure. Have a good rest of your night. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, so that was uh, poems from the California Water and Fire Anthology, which you can see. Or Fire and Water, I keep saying it backwards. California Fire and Water Anthology, a climate crisis anthology edited by Molly Fisk, um, including poems by Brenda Hillman, Gary Snyder, Indigo Moore, Jane Hirschfield, Juan Felipe Herrera. Um, and it's available from uh, Story Street Press in Nevada City, California. And uh, that's Molly right there. Um, now let's move on to the uh, truly open mic portion of the show. Um, if you have, uh, but I once, once again would like to invite any other contributors from the uh, anthology. If you'd like to share a poem too, or if you have other poems about fire you'd like to share or the climate crisis, um, feel free to email it to openmic at rattle.com and uh, send me a chat message over Skype or phone me at 818-850-7727. Um, let me, I forgot to log into um, that open mic account, so let me open that up and see. We have a lot of people who are interested in sharing poems today. The, the prompt for today was um, right here. The prompt was uh, write a poem with a color as the title. And uh, once again, I wrote a poem at the last minute. I have to stop doing that. I have to start writing longer poems and uh and not within the last 20 minutes of the show but but my poem was about um uh 
about mummy brown, which is interesting. I never I I looked up um, exotic colors or strange colors, and um, apparently in the uh, pre-Raphaelite phase of uh, art, um, mummy brown was a very popular color, which was um, actually um, made with the ground up um, pigment from mummies from Egypt, and um, until people realized what it was made from. And, um, and, and there was sort of a revolt and, and one painter, I guess, famously found out and, and had a burial, like a funeral for his, uh, pigment. Um, another word for this pigment was dead man's head, kaput mortem. And so my poem was, uh, dead man's head, which you can see on the screen here, dead man's head. Think of all the pieces you could be. A layer of dust at the bottom of the sea, an urn on a mantle, hoping to last a corpse in a box or burnt on a raft. Why not ground into pigment whose ashes improve, liberty leading the people still looked on at the Louvre? And Lady Liberty leading the people is a, is a painting that actually used um, Mummy Brown or Dead Man's Head as, um, as the shadowing of, the, of that painting. Now, here is Megan's poem. She wrote about red, and there's a little asterisk, so let's see what that asterisk says. Uh, Some sources claim red is the first color an infant can see. And as always, I'm sure Megan's poem is better than mine, because that's the way marriage works. (laughs) Red. It must have been my mouth, then, that she fixated on. Her first flower. Could she see it? The faint spark of it? even when it was pale as the bleached wallpaper roses of the hospital room she was born in. Those roses seemed to bloom as she did, but my mouth was cracked with dehydration. With a lack of self-care, mothers laugh off. I haven't seen a shower. I haven't had a shower in days, haven't slept in weeks. There were the days we both blossomed, and I wore lipstick the color of, the new, of new blood, and what she saw was a half-moon shining. And then I fade, a faded O of despair when she cried for hours and hours and I sang her songs. Come with me, we'll go and see the Big Rock Candy Mountain. And maybe to her it looked like I was gasping for air. And maybe I was, but I kept singing. I sang her every song I ever heard until my mouth shriveled and rotted and still she reached for it like the ripest, juiciest fruit, an apple hanging just in reach as if meant for her. That is Megan's poem for this week, Red. So uh, let's see what you have to share. Um, I will call up who is the first to ask on. Um, It looks like, let's call up, let's call up this uh, 650 number and see who that is. This is someone we haven't talked to before, so uh, we'll see in just a second. Hello. Hey, this is Tim from Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Yeah, sure. Uh, who am I talking um, to? Oh, I'm Gene Burson. Hey, Gene. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. And where are you calling from? I, uh, I'm calling from the Bay Area right now, but uh, I live up in Grass Valley near Nevada City. Oh, ah, okay. Did you want to share a poem um, about our prompt for yeah, the week sure. or about, about uh, the climate crisis? Oh, I'm Gene Burson. Um, hey, Gene. How's it going? I, uh, I think I'd like to share a new... Uh, a new smoke poem, a new poem about the fires. It's all one I have in the 
anthology. All right. Hang on one second. I can hear myself in the background. So why don't you close out that uh, whatever you're watching this on because the delay gets confusing and there's sort of an echo. Okay, go ahead. So, yes, go ahead. So what do you want to share? Is smoke? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is a poem called uh, O Romeo. O Romeo, hand me my armadillo mandolin. I need to sing. Turn on the transporter machine to the moment, shimmering alongside this one. Somewhere, wind is blowing, trailing a wake of sunlight through a hillside of spring grass. I see a sailboat leaning, thin as a butterfly, under a bruised sky, so piercingly white. Everybody stopped on the Embarcadero, peering over their steering wheel, trying to remember where they were going. The smoke hasn't gone away this time. New fires are breaking out even in Oregon. And the fire season is just beginning. Ash flecks the cars, the leaves, plumes of it, risen 30,000 feet, blocked out the sun, blocked the blue rays, turned the air Martian orange. In the city, fog darkens it further. Streetlights are still on. It's like midnight at noon. In the East Bay, the sun is a small disk, a Eucharist rising from the demonic region of civil war to hang over the battlefield in the dawn haze. The weeds and crushed dandelions beginning to lift in hesitant springing upticks to waver over the bodies. One soldier is propped up as imagined in the red badge of courage, leaning against a tree as if taking a break, jaw slack, mouth agape, ants passing each other along his lips as if along a windowsill. He's come back to life on a chair and holding a cardboard sign next to a crooked blue tent under the overpass. The air knows what has happened. The answer no longer blowing in the wind. It's in the smoke that doesn't move. We're so divided now. It's no wonder civil war comes to mind. What can you do in this bizarre light and toxic ash but close the windows? Going out's as bad as staying in. Everybody contracted to whatever channel profits by reinforcing his opinion. On top of killing the earth, this shit is ruining my poetry. Our atmosphere of war is appropriate. People shot in the back by police. Most generals afraid to speak out. Dictatorship nearly in place. Nobody's in control but a creep extolled as the Messiah by mostly good people, bewildered by neglect and damaged self-esteem, when what's really in control is the burning earth, which is burning and burning. And even now, I'm about to get in my car, drive across the bridge to meet someone 
for coffee. We're all complicit in this march toward global extinction. Inertia is a motherfucker. Going outside now, the news says, is like smoking eight cigarettes. We are a race of suicidal idiots conditioned to band together in small groups that circle each other warily, despise each other, and we often don't even know why. Perhaps we mistake this huddling for love. Romeo and Juliet are dead, having dared to love, having finally united their feuding families, the Capulets, with the hated Montagues in mutual grief by killing themselves. Where does that leave us, who are still in love, from different tribes, still alive, and still needing fresh air? Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. What was the title of that again? Oh, Romeo. Oh, Romeo. And what was your name? I I forgot in in the process. I'm doing too many things at once. Uh, Gene Burson. Gene Burson. Thanks so much for calling, Gene. I'm going to add you to my, my call list here for next time. Thanks so much for calling. Okay, doke. Thank you. Very good show. Great, great with Molly. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Have a good night. Okay. So let's let's do um, um, Nivedita Karthik because she is in um, India. Let's see. Yeah, and, and it must be like, gosh, what time is it there? Is it like four a.m.? Let's call uh let's call Nivedita. So the phone is ringing. She was on the uh open mic show on Sunday. India. Hey Nivedita, how you doing tonight? Um hey Tim. Um <laughs> it's no, it's actually seven forty-five in the oh, morning. Oh, so okay, so you're already up. That well, that works out perfectly. Okay, um, I think yeah, I can hear I'm myself. I think I can hear myself in the background. Are you listening still? No, I'm not. Hmm. Maybe well, it's just very a bit faint. Of yeah, it's very faint. So that's okay. I don't think anybody else can hear it. Um, so your poem for the prompt was "Blue Despondency." Is there anything you want mm-hmm. to say about it before you read? Um, I just I don't know why I even wrote this poem in the first place, but then I think it goes quite well with the theme of what we're doing today which is um, climate change and things like that. So there's a bit of blue, there's a bit of orange, so it goes well with fire and water. So I was like, yeah, you know what, serendipity. Perfect. Well, it fits the prompt perfectly too. So go ahead and read it whenever you're ready. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. So here we go. I'm sorry, it's on the other laptop, so I'm just switching over. Oh, no problem. Um, blue despondency. Blue ice, blue smock, blue jar, blue sky, blue everything. I stare in vain for something to break the monotony and spy a flash of orange so bright and kaleidoscopic it hurts my eyes, my mind, my soul. I grew sadder and sadder by the second till it became too much to bear that I imploded in on myself and was transported to this blue realm where there is no exit and no second chance. I lack the strength to leave. I am trapped in this endless blue void. I am trapped in this endless blue. I am trapped in this endless. I am trapped in this. I am trapped in. I am trapped. I am. I 
I will soon be transformed, be transformed into a transparent butterfly, forever feebly flapping my wings against the wall of this blue glass jar. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, and once again, that was Blue Despondency um, by Nevadita Karthik. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I'm so glad Thank to you uh, know me. you can catch it first thing in the morning, too. <laughs> so we either get you at the morning or the night. Yeah. <laughs> first thing in the morning, great day to start the day. Perfect. I, yeah. I know a better way if you ask me. Awesome. Thanks so much. Well, thanks. I hope to Thank see you, you again soon. Thank you for having me. Bye. Definitely. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Okay. Um, let's see. we got a whole bunch of people. Um, We'll try to get to as many people as we can. Um, let's see. Who haven't we had in a while? Because I'm not sure if we'll be able to get to everybody today. Um, let's do let's do Kathy Gibbons. We'll call up Kathy. Wait, why don't I? There we go. We'll call up Kathy. Hello. Hey, Kathy. How are you doing tonight? Oh, hi, Tim. I'm doing very well, thank you, and loving all the poetry. Thanks for that. Yeah, me too. So is there anything you want to say about your poem, or do you want to just dive right in? Um, well, this poem, um, we were doing a renovation at our house a few years back, and I was ecstatically telling one of my sisters about the colors of blue we were using, cobalt and so forth, and, and she was very wounded and said to me, but I thought purple was your favorite color. And so I felt like I was cheating on purple, <laughs> And I needed to write a poem about purple. And so th this is uh, part of the poem. It, it's got four other parts to it, but I've, I'll read the last section of it tonight. Okay, great. Let's hear it whenever you're ready. Okay, it's called Purple. Chromaticity. Purple falls between red and blue and also crimson and violet while magenta hovers near on the color wheel. Purple is moody, royal and religious, mystical and magical, penitent and mournful, and always triumphant. Ambivalent, seductive, erotic, purple prose, purple hearts, purple people eaters claim this ambiguous nightshade as their own. Pleiades has a purple star obsessively spinning from afar, blue-white color obscured by the electrical excitement of its red, glass, red gas whirl. Purple aphrodisiac, insects want to pollinate. Purple psychedelic, purple rain and purple haze. Eggplants, pansies, grapes, sea urchins, finches, frogs. Women, suffragettes and amethyst apartheid, purple rain protest. Vestments, tabernacles, king of the Jews, wear the Tyrian purple of the humble murex sea snail and its synthesized progeny. Purple wears a different form of light, one emitted by excited objects. It's a non-spectral color without its own wavelength of light. Maybe that's why purple tries so hard to be important to so many. In fact, purple is mostly an artifact, an interloper, depending upon the kindness of strangers to put on soft colors to shimmer and glow. But to its credit, purple knows how to hitch a ride on a rainbow. Although it should be noted that turquoise is pretty too, and blue. <laughs> That's excellent. Thanks so much. A purple poem from Kathy Gibbons. One thing I always think about purple, it's a great color, and um, but it's the one color you're not supposed to make book covers. Did you know that? 
Um, no, I did not. Yeah, no. like look around next time if you're ever in a bookstore again, if such things exist when we're out of the lockdown. There are very few colors. So it's sort of a secret rule of thumb that you oh. should never make your book purple or else it will hurt sales. Ah, file so. for future notice. <laughs> yeah. Thanks yeah. a lot, Tim. It yeah. was a wonderful show. And I loved it that Katie Brown's poem had so many colors in it. And, uh, um, of course, Molly's poem to Phil also had some Yeah, it's like we set this stuff up, but, but we really didn't. It's, it's just it's like synchronicity. <laughs> it really <laughs> so is, yeah. Stuff. Well, thanks, Kathy. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, um, let's try. We haven't had Michelle Parks in a while. Let's call Michelle Parks next. And I'm going to open up a window quick for Michelle. Hello. Hey, Michelle. How are you doing tonight? I'm all right. Let me, um, let me get a word doc so I don't, I, I don't want to dox your email. I hate when I do that to people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what was your, your poem about? Uh, honestly, I haven't been on in a while, so I didn't know the prompt. My best friend of 35 years passed away unexpectedly. And so the piece I have is actually um, weird because both of us are 46 years old. And, um, well, anyway, uh, it's about yellow. Um it's called On Explaining Intuition. Yeah, well, I'm... Folly, perhaps. Oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm just sorry. saying, I'm just very sorry to hear about your friend. Uh, that's that's really sad. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Um, folly, perhaps. I have no belief in chance. 47 is around you. It's yellow and breath. Dandelion, startling, thrust between two fingers, a promise. There's more to come. Another beautiful poem, as always. Thanks so much for sharing that. And, and yeah, I'm just sorry to hear about your friend. That's too bad. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Good night, it. Michelle. You too. Bye. Yeah. And that could have been, you know, the color yellow. So that counts for the prompt, too. Let's see. Um... Yeah, I don't think we're gonna be able to get to everybody because we have we still have like a dozen people left. Um, Trying to remember who we haven't had in a while. Oh, there's. Let's see. Let let me do. Um, actually, I think everybody else is the usual crowd, so we'll get to as much of the usual crowd as we can. Thanks so much for for being the usual crowd. I I love you and appreciate you. Let's do Angela Gartner next. Hey, Angela. How are you doing today? Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, what What did you, you wrote about gray, gray areas of cliches. What drew you to gray? Okay, but I kind of screwed up. Okay. Way. How so? The, a title's in the, a color's in the title. It's the, you can't screw it up. That's all there is to it. Yeah, it was a color in a title, but mm -hmm. it's not technically about the color. <laughs> <laughs> well if you put if you have a color in the title you did it right so so okay, just just go like, with it I roll with it <laughs> okay good okay okay go I was ahead like, Listen, I'm like oh no okay but we'll go quick because I know you want to get to other people okay. My, I actually wrote a longer poem this time which I yeah I noticed 
Yeah, I got to start doing that, too. I got to get back in the I had the uh, short poem excused. You know, I'm trying to do short poems, but really, I need to start writing some longer poems. So I'm going to work on that. <laughs> well, this is actually in um, kind of I have my Poe Raven scarf on today. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. So um, it's kind of um, I kind of did it in Poe style, like Raven style. So mm -hmm. um, and you'll see why. So Okay, okay well, go ahead. It's, it's ready for everybody. Gray areas of cliches. My new mediocre novel began, began with a cliche. The dark and stormy night is the first line I wrote. A dead ringer of a tale told a million times before. I got up from my desk and put on my coat. The wind slammed the water against the rocks on the coast. There were three knocks on my door, which gave me a jolt. This came to mind. It slowly opened to a madman who wielded his hunting knife at you. He looked as though he had one foot in the grave. I knew this wasn't right, but I checked on my wife. She was sleeping and didn't move against, I'm sorry, didn't move again despite the loud booms and the slightly rocking timbers. I walked to the sound, holding my fist ready to spring. It stopped for a moment and I watched our entrance arc. I decided to open the door just to crack so I could slam whoever was pounding. But it was a crow that stood on my porch. Oh, Poe, you saw a raven. The bird I saw flew off when I lurched toward it. Then a small figure hit the side of my head with force. I put my hand to my cheek that was now bleeding and torn. The blood trickled on my lips and my skin was hanging down. I stepped back into the entryway expecting another blow. In the dark, the shadow of the bird held something resembling a worm. This, there was not one, but two, four, five, eight. There was more of them. The crows on the wire above our house was calling noisily in unison. I began to sweat. My legs wobbled and the shoes stuck to the ground. My thoughts turned to a novelist in one of his own ghost stories. Then black feathers ruffled in the rain and each put out their wings. I tried to feebly cry out a word of warning to my sleeping family before the birds did a downstroke angle to attack me with ease. Their swift rips to my face and body put me on my knees. I woke to the sounds of tears, but my eyes were no longer there. I, I was carried away, but I clawed at them, spraying blood in my rage. My mouth was open, but I didn't have teeth or lips to speak out. My own demise is that I couldn't put my words on the page. Those haunting, beady eyes knew I was a man in his cage. The murderous row book will now never see the light of day. Oh, wow. Thanks for sharing that. It was areas, <laughs> great areas of cliches. Thanks so much. It was, it was very fun. <laughs> Thanks, Angela. <laughs> Thank you. Have a great you day. You too. Good night. Thanks. Okay, um, let's try to get through people quick, but let's do, um, who is next in order? Let's do, um, let's do Brent. He's got a color poem. Solferino. Hey, hey, Brent, how's it going? I'm not going to pull you in until your audio, I know it, it takes a second for you. Okay, okay I think, yeah, <laughs> there's a, a, a time thing. Thing. Yeah, yeah I, I remember stuff. Oh. It, it takes a while for me to learn, but I learn. So, yeah. Solferino. <laughs> what is Solferino? I've never heard that before. Yeah. 
Well, it's a color that's a lot like magenta. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, both magenta and solferino were named after uh, battles in the Italian wars for independence. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, but the one in solferino was uh, named by a guy who was there, and he was so um, moved by what he saw on the battlefield, uh, he wrote about it, and eventually the uh, the Red Cross was born. Oh, wow. Uh, because there weren't people helping. Mm-hmm. There were all these uh, wounded soldiers, and nobody was helping them. Oh, wow. That's some interesting uh, history. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. But I, like you, I waited until the last minute <laughs> to, yeah. to, to, to write it. And so this is the first draft that needs a ton of work. There's one couplet that reads like a book report because <laughs> that's, it, there's so much information I wanted to get in there. Yeah, well, so it's a cool story for gonna... sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Let's go. Yeah. Go ahead. It's me. Okay. All right. Um, Solferino. First came purple in all its majesty, stolen only from the shellfish of Tyre. Second, from Afghanistan, lapis lazuli, when ground, surrendered blues for Mary. Then starry-eyed chemists concocted a color for the masses, calling it magenta. Soon after, a newcomer, darker and stronger than a regular rose, descended upon the scene. Swiss businessman Henry Durant had seen it before, on June 24, 1859, in the war-blasted town of Solferino. 20,000 French, Italian, and Austrian soldiers were bleeding their hot blood into the muddied soil. This dreadful alchemy made that same melancholy hue. The cries for help, unheeded, punctured the afternoon. Awesome. That was Solferino by uh, by Brent Stoffer. Thanks so much for sharing that, yeah. Brent. I, I, oh, I, I, yeah. Oh, I just wanted to say what a blast it was having uh, my poems talked about on the Critique of the Week. And I want to highly recommend to everybody who hasn't to uh, put themselves in the list for that because it's it's great and very helpful. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, well, thanks. It's my pleasure. It's a lot of fun to do that every Friday. Uh, thanks, Brent. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, and so for the critique of the week, um, we're going to have, I haven't done it yet, but I mentioned it on Friday. I'm going to make, an, instead of using Facebook, which no longer allows you to game the system in that way. So so what it was is, is um, it wasn't the reason why I did the critique of the week, but um, I, I took advantage of it by um, making there be a lot of Facebook comments, by making people say, I'm in, makes it so there's like 50 comments, and then Facebook says, hey, people want to see your posts. Um, just like with this, clicking the like button says that. But uh, Facebook, the algorithms learned that trick, and uh, they now down downgrade you if you try it. So I'm going to, um, I haven't yet, but I'm going to um, make a submittable category for the Critique of the Week. So uh, right now I'm putting together the, the, the winter issue, um, and I'm about done with that. And as soon as I finish, that's what I'm going, I'll do that and um, let everybody know, but you'll be able to sort of submit for it from now on, um, rather than using Facebook comments to, um, to join. Let me really quick, I want to look up, self, I want to look up that color. Solferino. Let me see. Um, interesting. So we just get pictures of the town. Never mind. 
Um, well, we have this, the Battle of Solferino. Anyway, let's move on to um, another poet. Let's, um, who should we do next? Uh, Molly, let's do Richard Westheimer. Yeah, let's do, yeah, Richard says if they have time, but we have time. Um, so the phone is ringing. <laughs> Kathy Gibbons says, uh, Magento is my favorite crayon. Hey, Richard, how you doing tonight? Good. So I totally missed Solferino because of the time warp. Oh, really? <laughs> I, mean, I missed your, your looking it up. No, I, I couldn't find it, actually. I looked it up. I tried to look up, and every picture was the town. So I was wondering, like, what exact shade it was. But I, every picture was the town of Solferino, France, or wherever it was. Let me, let me try to find your poem really quick. Um, uh, here it is. Prop poem. Violet, you did. So probably similar to Solferino. So um, is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? No. I, I, it just It's interesting where the prompts go. I just... <laughs> You know, a color came up, mm-hmm. I wrote it down, and then wrote the poem from there. Awesome. Okay, well, go ahead. I'll, I'll put it on screen. You're ready. Okay. Go ahead. Good. Violet. My grandson calls his favorite color purple, but I know what he means. My son calls himself queer, hangs a rainbow flag over the bed he shares with yet another woman. I call my geezer skin, which blooms bruises at the slightest bump, is marked by violet rosettes, a palette for forgotten insults. My lover calls the rose moon magic, tumbles back on the dew-soaked ground, pulls me down hard on top of her. I am reminded not all insults are injuries. Oh, excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. And that was... Uh... That was Violet uh, by Richard Westheimer. Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks. And I realized when I read the word dew-soaked ground that you probably were a little jealous. <laughs> yeah, I am. It still has not rained in, uh, since yeah. May, but but what can yeah, you do? I, I, wish, I wish moisture for you. Yeah, thank you. I, I You know, there's a, on the 10th, which is only four days away, there's a slight chance. So maybe we'll get a little bit. No. There's hope. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Thanks, Richard. Good to see you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Okay, um, let's see. Um, we are really running out of time, but let me, let me maybe get one more person. Um, sorry if I can't get to you, but there's still like 10 people on here. Um, yeah, let's do um, Cameron Gray. Let's do Cameron Gray, and that'll be the last for today. I'm sorry if I didn't get to you, but the kids do have to get to bed. So the phone's ringing. Hey, Cameron, how are you doing tonight? Good, how are you? I am excellent. Um, so you got Yella. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you want to it's say about immediately, it? No, it's just it, immediately when you said the color, that's what I thought of, and I wasn't really sure where it was going to go, but it's long, and I'm just going to read it, and it explains itself. Excellent. Well, go ahead. Okay. Um, Yella. The triple dog dare is a hard thing to skip, but with eyes peeled wide and fists at my hips, I reared back with total exasperation. I don't care if it's down not too far, and your uncle's a dumbass for loaning you his car. If only they sold brains at the dollar store. You're acting like it can't be done. Sure, it's risky, but that's half the fun. 
Come on, you can pull this off without a sound. Besides, I know you don't want word getting round that you're yellow. Boy, I could color you now, black and blue. In a few days, you'd be yellow, too. You ought not be pushing your luck so far. Besides, if I wanted to go, I'd take my car. You think I'd trust any other piece of shit? Well, shoot fire. That'd be just fine and dandy. I'm guessing you got plenty of gasoline handy. You sure gonna need it to be able to make it to the top. Best get a jug and top me off, since he's the one pushing for me to be a show-off. Now step aside for a bit. I need a drink of my own. No way I'm dying with all these sober bones. Not if I can help it, anyway. You just get yourself in the right frame of mind. Works out fine, because that'll give me time to gather us a good crowd. Three drinks and I'm fearless. Always have been. It's not that I have to fight. It's just that I have to win. And as my anxiety floats away, I wonder... How the fuck did I get roped into this drive? The time has come. No more drinks. No more talks. The spectators are silent as I begin my takeoff. The hill is a mountain covered in loose rocks. If all goes well, I'll look down from the top and be able to hear my applause. Speed's not the game. I gotta be steady. I can the brute force and keep my reflexes ready for just about everything to go sideways. It's a bit of a dance with the forward and back, but I'm halfway there, and with pride and pack, I tell my engine friend, she's doing great. Then I make it just a few feet more, but my tires start to chip away at the floor, and the rock and the dust begin to flow like a waterfall. Down I go as gravity demands. My foot feels the brake, and the wheel jerks my hands. I pray that I don't back into a goddamn tree. The moment I feel the inertia stop, I close my eyes and here comes a rock or a boulder bold enough to break my windshield. Sure, I know windshields replaced, but it jumped through the glass and kissed me in the face and now I get to have my nose reset. But the crowd went wild. I'm a hero, no doubt, and say what you will about local clout, but real respect can't be bought with cash. So I lay in this bed while my body heals. They check on me hourly and bring me my meals. Half my skin is red, purple, and blue. And in a week or so, I'll be yelling. <laughs> that was great. Thanks so much, Cameron. Great fun as always. Um, <laughs> that was Yella. Thanks so much for calling in and sharing that, Cameron. Right. Thanks for having me. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Okay, uh, let's do... do um, gosh, we got, we got six people left. Let's do one more. Um... Let's do uh, Joyce Dahl. Hello. Hey, Joy. Thanks uh, for sharing a poem. Do you want to? Do you want to say anything about it before you read it? It's a pretty short one. Yeah, I, I think it's self-explanatory, but I do have to say that I included source material. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, go ahead. Go ahead and read it. All right. Pink light really doesn't exist replaces a color that's missed. In spectrum unseen, call it minus green or manganese tourmaline schist. Oh, I love that. That's great. That was Pink by Joy Stahl. Thanks for sharing that, Joy. <laughs> Thank you. I know how much you like science. <laughs> I do. I love it. I definitely love it. Thanks. <laughs> yep. Good night. Good night. So that was quick. So let's let's just do another one. Let's do um one last one. Um... Gosh, who? Oh, I think this is just a message from Raphael. I don't think he has a poem. Let's do um, Carlos Schwartz then. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. So how are you doing tonight, Carla? Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I was a little 
frazzled and still working on the move, but uh, I'm managing, which is good. That's good. How um, when, when you moved like last week? Uh, a portion of my move happened, I guess, two weeks ago. But mm-hmm. I'm my house is for sale. I'm selling it, and it's and and uh, so I'm trying to sell the things that I used for staging before I have to move them. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that makes sense. I, you know, I never, I was going to ask Molly if she was thinking about moving. Cause I think about moving cause of these stupid fires every year. And uh, oh, yeah. the thought of it is just so exhausting though, that, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, anyway, yep. what, what, no, what, what, what was your color today? My color is the title of my poem, which is the color of lake water. Interesting. Okay. And, um, and so it's it's the color, it's, but anyway, it's, I'm trying to describe it, but it's the poem is partly about that, but I also have an epigraph, which is, uh, believe me, my young friend, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, half so much worth doing as simply messing about in boats. Oh, I remember that. The wind, I, the wind in the willows. Yeah, okay? we, we just read The Wind in the Willows to my son you know, a couple months ago, so that was very fresh oh. in my brain. I love The Wind in the Willows. Okay, go ahead, whenever you're ready with the poem. Okay, the color of, of lake water. And this is all in syllabics, by the way, inspired by you last week. Oh, great. <laughs> the color of lake water is not clear or murk, but both. Graded in tannins, in what is there, embedded in sand, stones bigger than bed pillows, rocks, bark, pine cones. Do mention old sun-faded beer cans, paint peeled off, crumpled flat, almost just the foil left, each one with a story to convey, stored deep within the old can, drunken ice fishing winters, drunken boating in summer. Today, to set a mooring, we loop around a large rock, a shiny length of stainless chain, swivel shackled and roped to an inflated buoy. Floating blue and white, The chain, double anchored to rock and to an actual anchor, steel, galvanized, but with a crack, we finally made, found a use for that anchor, easily recognized for what it is, its grayness burrowed into sand. Now, under all this lake, we need to find a fallen light, a white traveling light, an anchor light we intend to mount, but instead we drop lost in the drink, as they say, and I look to the water for its clarity in late afternoon, expect to see the aluminum stalk bent near its top, a metallic shine at lake bottom, lit up by the sun amidst the muck. As I search uh, and paddle round our boat on its mooring, the shadowed light is waxing and the lake is darkening. I see mostly the blackness, the somber ripples beneath my paddleboard, beneath my paddleboard, each white streak I see, I think, here it is, there it is again, but no, only pontoon reflection until we move the boat off its mooring back to the dock. And then like a Martian eyeing me from underneath the surface, a plastic case submerged vertical, not a ground at all, but up, 
this seahorse of a Martian, one-eyed, staring, calls to me to reach down and retrieve it, our floating light, unlit, and in the clear murkiness, I have finally found it. Awesome. That was great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. And I love the... um... You know, in the interview with uh, A.E. Stalling, she was trying to teach me to appreciate syllabics. And, and she was talking about the tension between, like, line length and the way it sort of forces certain, like, syntaxes and stuff. And you could hear that in that. That was great. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Carla Schwartz. Of course, she's CB99 videos on YouTube um, in the comment stream. That's her if you if you see her there. And that is the show for tonight. Thanks, everybody. Um, I'm sorry that I couldn't get to everybody, but I really do have to get the kids to bed and stuff. Um, and um, so next week, the prompt is going to be... That's it. Write a poem about an abandoned castle. That's next week's prompt. It's one of Megan's prompts that she does every week for us. Write a poem about an abandoned castle. That's pretty... That's a fun one. It's going to be kind of... Um, easy to get into i think you can imagine a bit an abandoned castle so that is next week's trump write a poem about an abandoned castle and uh, next week's guest is going to be am juster uh his his new book out wonder and wrath it, it just released like last week um we interviewed him in um issue number 55 of rattle so there's a whole interview with uh am juster um also known as michael astrew the um um secretary of the social security administration um back in the day writing under a pen name as a really successful poet at the same time he was a very successful public servant um, so it's always interesting to talk to him um excellent formal poet translator and his newest book is wonder and wrath we'll be talking to him tuesday october 13th 9 p.m eastern it's rattlecast number 62 hope to see you then in the meantime have a good night good night <laughs>